I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. So, I guess we're talking about politics and church this morning. And uh, I don't love the idea of talking about politics in church, to be honest with you. Uh, politics can be super divisive, right? And uh, in particular, in the political climate that we're currently swimming in, politics are often incredibly divisive. I don't, I don't know, maybe for some of you, I disappoint you. Uh, maybe others, I, I've, just, I've been just right. I'm not exactly sure, but um, I tend to want to let the scriptures lead us into politics. Uh, I, I find myself sometimes um, inspired by those of you that are more politically astute than I am. I read these like legislation pieces that I'm supposed to care a lot about as a Christian. And I sometimes ask myself, like, I don't even know what this bill is actually saying. It all feels confusing at times. Maybe, maybe you guys know what I'm saying. I think this issue of politics and and what to do with government in our lives can be a really uh, challenging topic. But today, the scriptures are leading us into the topic. So here we are to discuss what Jesus has to say about the kingdom of man. I also, you know, I just want to ask for some permission to be in process in this regard. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I've not, like, arrived. I don't consider myself to, like, be the expert on how Christians ought to act in the political sphere or in the uh, civic sphere. I also, I've also can look back and, and wonder, you know, did I do it right there? Did I interact with the political world in a way that was godly? Like I, I look back on my life and I, I wonder some of those things. Like for example, just a few years ago, I remember uh, March, what, March 17th, 2020, something like that. Um, I had been hearing these rumors of a COVID virus that I, I just, I remember telling a friend like on Tuesday of that week, all that they're saying is going to happen is not going to happen. I can guarantee you that. I literally gave the stamp, the guarantee. And of course I was wrong. And on March 17th, the, sh- the schools shut down. I was at a meeting at a church. Uh, the church we were at was Radiant at the time. I was at a meeting. This is kind of funny, God's sense of humor. It was a calendar planning meeting. We spent the entire meeting talking about the calendar for the upcoming 12 months in the life of the church. And then our worlds got rocked. And I remember uh, sitting with some of the leaders at Radiant Church a few mornings later, and we, we were essentially looking around at ourselves asking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Do you guys remember? I mean, in hindsight, it starts to feel like it's more clear than it was at that time. I don't know if you can remember feeling a bit puzzled. And I remember myself thinking, and I think I even said it out loud, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And I felt like the whole COVID 
experiment was an opportunity to figure out what does it mean to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. So here we go. Let's talk about it. But, but while we're talking about politics, let me just say, ultimately, uh, this passage isn't just about our politics or how we follow Jesus uh, under our relationship to government. I think ultimately the key to understanding this passage is understanding how we're to rightly order our allegiances. Who's our primary allegiance? That's what we're getting after as we get after this passage. So just permission for you to be in process. Can you give me permission to be in process as it relates to this idea of coming under a government? And we could just acknowledge that like this is a pretty charged topic. And I don't know all of your stories in relationship to this. So here we go. We're going to come together in unity. Um, this, this story takes place at a real climax in the story of Jesus. And we've been in this climactic spot the last number of weeks. And, and I think, you know, we're living in a very climactic spot, aren't we? Uh, the political heat has only uh, increased, really, since COVID, and we, we find ourselves in a bit of an election cycle. And so maybe we're, we're in the perfect spot to uh, consider these words of Jesus today. Jesus, imagine, he's just walked into the temple and completely overthrown the temple. Said, nope, we're not doing it this way in my house. My house will be a house of prayer. And then he's returned to the temple, and he started teaching, this is what my house will be like. He, de- he deconstructed the temple, and he's returned to reconstruct his vision for his church. And in his reconstruction, parable stories, the finger got put on the religious leaders. And they started to realize, like, oh man, all these parables Jesus is telling, they're about us. We're the subject of his parables. And so they go away, and they come up with a plan. This story today is a new story about how they respond and what their plan is. So also at this time, remember, these, these are Jesus' final days. We are, we are in the last week of Jesus' life, and the plot to kill him is completely underway. And that's where our story starts today. The, the passage is about a conflict. The passage is about a Caesar's coin. And the passage is about Christ's conviction. So let's, let's jump right in. Verse 15, and you can follow along in your Bibles with me. Let's start with this climactic conflict. Verse 15, then the Pharisees, it says, went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. This is really interesting start to the story. Notice it's not even the Pharisees themselves that come to trap Jesus. They sent two groups, their disciples, representatives, I guess we would say. Maybe they thought, hey, he won't recognize these guys. We'll send our underlings. He, they also came along with a group called the Herodians. You should see Herod as the root in the Herodians. We don't hear much about the Herodians in Scripture, but what you should know is that the Herodians and the Pharisees represent opposite camps. These are people that are unlikely to be brought together. Two groups. The Pharisees were friends of Israel's religious power. 
The Herodians were friends of Rome's political power. They were called Herodians because they supported King Herod. Maybe you remember the name King Herod, who was a Jew sent to rule on behalf of Rome. A Jew, a Jew ruling over his people on behalf of Rome. So on one side, we've got the political powers, the Pharisees. And on the other side, we've got the political power, the Herodians. So again, these groups, they've, they've been opposed to one another. They are opposed on every count. They would normally be enemies, but they have one thing in common, a new shared enemy, Jesus. The one thing these groups have in common is that they don't like what Jesus is saying. Both groups are threatened, and so they're coming together to trap him. This is the reason that they come together. In the next few weeks, we're going to see four questions. Every passage starts with a question. The funny thing, the ironic thing about the question that leads today's passage is it's not really a question at all. It's a trap. Their goal is to get the people alienated from Jesus. And if they can get the people alienated from Jesus, they win. So they come with a trap. So... How are they going to trap him? Let's take a look. Verse 16, it says, uh, they started in with teacher. We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Anyone notice a little flattery in those words? Comes off as a little bit patronizing they're buttering him up. It, it reminded me a little bit uh, when I was, I, I remember a number of years ago as a young football coach, I was trying to learn how to stop this one team. The, the Chowchilla um, High School ran this unique offense called the double wing offense, and it was really unique. And uh, I remember like, oh, we got to learn, try to figure out how to stop this offense. And then I realized that if you, if you talked to their coach and you buttered him up, like, oh, you, you're so great. This is so amazing. What are you doing? You know, how do you do this? How do you do that? He would tell him all the secrets. He would tell you all the secrets. It seems like the Pharisees and the Herodians are trying to use this type of buttering up to get Jesus to step into the trap. You see what I'm saying? They're, they're showering praises on him. It made me think, you know, uh, if Jesus is a picture of, of how we can sometimes be tempted, I, I was just wondering, like, have you ever been tempted by flattery or praise? I was actually convicted. That's probably like one of the primary ways you could get to me. Tell me how great I am. I'm prone to step right into your trap, but not Jesus. Jesus saw right through it. So Jesus... Um, Looks at, let's go to verse 17. It says um, the next part of the question. This is really the question they were getting at. They buttered him up, and then they asked, What is your opinion, Jesus? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And uh, their question, again, remember, it's not really a question. It's a trap. Uh, their question assumes a yes or no answer. Is it right to pay the tax, or is it not right to pay the tax? But Jesus knows that these things are often more nuanced than this. Jesus knew the world was very rarely black and white. There was often gray. And he's not interested in stepping into their trap. If he says yes, he'll lose the people. 
The people who want him to be a revolutionary. The people who want him to be against Rome. The people who want him to free them from Roman rule. They'll likely uh, brand him a heretic and a friend of Rome if he answers the question simply yes. So he can't, he can't answer the question that way. He's still got a few more days before he's supposed to die. But if he says no, he positions himself against Rome as a political revolutionary and threat. So his choice are, yes, the people hate me and will want to kill me. No, Rome will hate me and want to kill me. I'm sure he knows the fate of someone who opposed Rome. The question that they're asking, it's, it's akin to the type of question I'd be asking if, for example, I said to Noah, Noah, does your wife know that you smoke crack? She doesn't know. So Noah says, no. Oh, Jacqueline doesn't know that you smoke crack. Maybe you should tell her. You get what I'm saying? But if Noah says yes, well, then he's admitting to smoking crack. So either way, he's trapped. Thank you, Noah, for playing along. I didn't even tell him he was going to. Look, you show up, you sit close, you could get included in a story. Pat got me a shirt that said something to that effect, huh, Pat? It's like, uh, beware, your pastor could use anything you say or do in a sermon. <laughs> no, Noah has nothing to do with smoking crack. That was just a, a funny example. But you get what's happening here. They're trying to trap him. There's really no way for him to answer uh, yes or no. He's got to answer the question uh, with nuance because it's not a legit question. It's a trap. It's a leading question with evil intent. So Jesus, the all-knowing Son of God, he's not fooled by this trap. You would think, like, at this point, they would start to get the hint. Like, you're not going to trick Jesus. He knows what you're thinking. But no, Jesus, uh, Jesus knows the heart behind the question. And so he calls them out, verse 18, immediately. This is how he answers the question. Not yes or no. He says, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Look, I think first and foremost, we cannot see this text accurately unless we see the hearts of the religious leaders accurately. They're coming to Jesus, not with a question, but with a trap. They had their own motives. They could have cared less what he thought about paying the tax or not. The whole point of the question is to trap him. And, and if we're honest, I think that we do this too, right? Think about this. We, I think we do this when we choose convenience over convictions. Here's what I mean. Just a question for you. Are your, are your politics formed by your convictions or are they formed by the convenience of the stance you're taking? Again, be with me here in process. I remember when the vaccines came out and the teachers were all going to be the first ones to get vaccines, right? And uh, I didn't know what I thought about the vaccine, but you know what I, what I wanted? Convenience. And so I, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I guess I'm admitting right now, I, I, got, I got vaccinated early on. You know why? Because I didn't want to lose my job and I wanted to keep coaching football, probably both in equal order. And I knew that if I got sick, you see what I'm saying? There was no conviction that led to that decision. It was convenience. And sometimes we do this with our politics. For example, uh, did you know statistically, that two of the top three states in most abortions performed are Texas and Florida. Texas and Florida. The other one in the top three is New York. You might expect New York. But two of the top three are actually red states. 
that would consider themselves to be pro-life. So perhaps the Pharisees aren't the only ones to struggle with a little bit of hypocrisy. If we're honest, we often are led by convenience rather than our convictions. And look, the the point, hopefully here, I, I could pick fights with every side. The point isn't which side are you on. So anyways, these religious leaders, they're, they're trying to trap Jesus by asking a leading question, but Jesus will not be trapped. And as he so often does, he deflects the question with a question of his own, one that exposes their hearts. This is what Jesus is up to. If you show up to church, I had a friend invited him to church two weeks ago. He, he said, I want to show up to church and be convicted. I was like, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> But I think if we're honest, you know, the, Jesus' teachings do expose us. If you feel exposed when you walk into the doors of the church, like that's, I think we should all feel a little bit exposed. We shouldn't stay there because Jesus offers grace and he frees us from our shame. But these, the teachings of Jesus are exposing. And so this is what Jesus does. He exposes the hearts of these religious leaders. And he points to a biblical view for how to interact with the government. Verse 19, this is what he says. This is Jesus' answer. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, it says. So I think I actually have a picture here of a denarius, at least a representation of the denarius. So let's think about the time and place that this story is is occurring in. Ancient Israel in the time of Jesus was a colonized satellite of Roman imperial power. The Romans were in charge of Israel. And as a conquered people, the Jews were expected to pay taxes to Rome. In fact, that's probably why this coin was printed at all, so that the Jews could pay tribute to Rome. And now these taxes were just the cost of living under Roman rule. And as we know, historically, living under Roman rule had some upsides. Roman roads, infrastructure, civic organization, like these were all good things about living under Roman rule, and these taxes went to pay for these things. But, you know, as with most colonized uh, people, um, there wasn't like an eagerness um, that the Jewish people had to be under Roman colonization, right? I mean, we're Americans. We can think of how this went in our country's history, right? I mean, we have the, what do we call it? The Great American Tea Party, right? A great act of American civic disobedience. Anyways, uh, particularly on the religious right, revolutionary leaders uh, posed the objection, and this would have been the objection that was swimming in the cultural context that Jesus was living in. Should God's people pay taxes to an idolatrous and religiously debased state government? So Jesus says, show me the coin. So let's take a look at the coin. And I, don't, I, I doubt this is an actual coin. This is probably a representation or a replica. So Rome at this time was under the rule of a man named Tiberius. And so this here is a picture of Tiberius. On the other side of the coin would have been a picture of his mother, Livius. Tiberius on one side, his mother on the other. Evidently, he was a mother's boy. I don't know. Tiberius Caesar 
worshipful son of the divine Augustus. This is the inscription on the left of the coin. Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the divine Augustus. And then on the other side, it says in Greek, Pontiff Maxim, which means the supreme priest of the Roman state religion. The same name, this may sound familiar, the same name is now used for the Catholic Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, Pontiff Maxim. So this coin, a representation of Tiberius, is a bit of an icon. It's almost like a portable idol. It points to the deity that the Romans worshipped, their Caesar. See, to the Romans, Caesar was not a human ruler. He was divine, and he was the religious head of the state. So get this, uh, Israel's pious religious leaders, their religious elites, they have on them a piece of idolatrous currency. The hypocrisy goes even further, does it not? And so Jesus asked them, you've got this coin on you. You're asking me about this tax. You have the coin on you that was designed solely to pay the tax. And he asked them, whose image is on that coin? And whose inscription? The image and the inscription that I just told you about. And so they replied, Caesar's image and Caesar's inscription. And now comes the whole point of the passage. Jesus' answer to their question. But not in yes or no form. He's too smart for that. But with nuance, he gives a totally comprehensive and faithful to the one true God, Yahweh, but also honoring Caesar. So this is an amazing response by Jesus, and let's take a look at why. Verse 21, he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Jesus was like super good at saying things like right to the point when he wanted to get straight to the point. Deflecting questions and then like one sentence that says it all. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. The first statement must have shocked them. Imagine, give to C- are you participating in the worship of this Roman deity? It must have shocked them, but it was the second statement. That must have amazed them. Verse 22, it says, they left amazed. So here's Jesus' summary teaching on how to respond to earthly government in two parts. Point one, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The question begs, what does it mean for us to give to our Caesar what is Caesar's? Jesus' position towards government is marked by respect for the state evidently. Now, we know by now that Jesus uh, was not against paying the temple tax, so Jesus evidently is pro-taxes. I don't know if that's disappointing to, to realize. I have a friend who I was talking with about taxes at one point, and he said, you know, the key to doing your taxes well is to make sure your accountant is not a Christian. Anyways, hopefully none of your position is exactly the same as that. I think he was joking because he was actually a Christian. But Jesus was evidently okay with paying taxes. He said, pay the temple tax. We, we learned about that a few chapters ago. And here we see that he's saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
So Jesus is not anti-tax, but uh, a robust consideration of what the rest of the New Testament says about Christian citizenship citizenship, uh, will reveal that the sentiment goes much further, much deeper than just taxes. Is, I mean, I wonder, are we all, like, <clears throat> if you want to offend everybody, just stand up in church and say, taxes are Jesus' idea. You know, kidding, not kidding, right? I mean, who wants to pay taxes? None of us really do. But this is what the story kind of hinges on, this idea of giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. Hey, uh, Jesus wasn't the only uh, New Testament author to write about this concept. Go to Romans 13. This is Romans 13, 1 through 7. The apostle Paul said, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Think of whoever you think of, excuse me, think of whoever you think of when you think of the hardest U.S. president you've ever had been asked to follow. Excuse me. One in authority is God's servant for your good. That can be really hard to understand, can it not? Is everyone, I mean, we we maybe get a little bit uncomfortable. I, I can think of who I thought that was as a child growing up. It seems as if obeying our govern, governing authorities, oh, thank you, <clears throat> can be done both out of love for God and out of love for others. Remember back to the temple tax story, the whole point of paying the temple tax. Jesus said, if it's good for others, I'll pay the darn tax. And sometimes we comply out of love for others. So this is really interesting. Paul wasn't the only apostle to talk about this. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter's talking to a group of people who are being persecuted heavily for their faith. They're not living like in, you know, a rosy, like rosy times for their country. They're under constant persecution. They're probably thinking like this leader is a tyrant. And this is what Peter says. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. 
but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Sounds remarkably similar, doesn't it? Fear God. Honor the emperor. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Look, hear this. The command to give to Caesar what is Caesar's is just that, a command, and it resonates throughout the New Testament. Man, this ain't so easy. It can feel like the government that we're living in right now is not worthy of our submission. And you guys are being good. You're not like shaking your heads a lot, probably trying to keep your political cards in your pocket, which I totally understand. But uh, man, it's like at times um, our governments in this world are anti-God. And what do we do about that? Notice that Peter nor Paul nor Jesus justified the actions of their governments. And yet still we're taught, we're commanded to submit to earthly authority. And at times, you know, our governments are anti-God. And it's really shocking almost to hear that God is not anti-government. So the second part of this uh, teaching is give to God what is God's. Give to God what is God's. It made me think, I think we realized that what was Caesar's was the coin. The darn tax was Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. It made me think, well, what is God's? And what is God's? Everything is God's. See, Caesar only gets what belongs to Caesar, but God gets everything. This is the point of the story. God gets everything. Where is your allegiance? God gets everything. 1 Corinthians 10.26. If you want to do a really easy search in Scripture, do the search uh, for Bible verses that say something about everything being God's. There's like a million verses. They're they're easy to find. 1 Corinthians 10.26, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 1 Chronicles, Old Testament, 29.11, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Hebrews 2.10, New Testament, for whom and through whom everything exists. Everything exists from God. And for God. Old Testament. I'm going back and forth on you right now. Haggai 2, 8, and 9. What is God's? It says in this passage, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Psalm 50:10. Maybe you're familiar. It says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 22, 28. I love this one. This is really helpful when you feel like the governing ruler is not a good dude. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. God gives dominion, but everything is his. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Jesus' second point implies the rightful limitations of the state's authority over a Christian. We give something back to our government authority. 
but we do not give everything back to our government authority. Amen. Caesar's coin bears his image. Therefore, it's his. But human beings are image bearers also. And we bear the image of the living God. And we belong to him along with everything in his creation. The word for image here in Greek is the exact same word in Genesis 1 that talks about humans being made in the image of God. We owe the state its due, but we don't owe the state its deification. I'll say it again. We owe the state its due, but we don't owe the state its deification. You want my money? You can have my money. But the state can never take our faith. We give our loyalty to the state, but not an allegiance without limitations. This is good news. The state is God's servant. Scripture clearly teaches the state is God's servant. But if we're honest, and I think we're, we're easily able to be honest, the state can become demonic insofar as it asks for itself the things of God. As long as Caesar's only asking for what belongs to Caesar, fine. Give it back to Caesar. But Caesar cannot take what belongs to God. And what belongs to God? Everything belongs to God. It was like super confusing when churches were being asked to stop meeting. And I remember thinking, okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar early on feeling confused, like, I want to love my brother. You know what I'm saying? This is like the, the dilemma that we were, we were going through. And I, re, I remember thinking, you know, like, what, okay, like, what if I, you know, you do these scenarios, like, what if I was on a desert island and there was nobody else? Could I still have a faith, even like a personal faith in Jesus? Because there's certain things that Caesar cannot take. Jesus said, what belongs to God is God's. So the state is God's servant, but it, it can become demonic, and this is our problem. So this is the hard thing, the hard question to ask is like, it's easy to submit ourselves to a godly authority. Not hard to submit ourselves to a godly authority. If you've, got, if you've had a good dad, you're like, no problem. I submit to you, dad. It's easy. You follow God. It's really easy to follow a godly authority it gets really hard to follow and submit yourself to an authority that is not godly. And this is the world that we live in, is it not? But this is the world that Jesus lived in. The Caesar that he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, was not a good man. The Romans would go on to do all kinds of horrific things to Christians. And yet Jesus still taught what he taught. So what do we do, though? Because scripture also has something to say about what to do when government becomes oppressive, demonic, sinful. Psalms 2, 2 says, The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is the human experience, is it not? That not all authority is godly authority. I'm reading through, I'm like at a really long stretch in my Bible reading right now, if you can relate. I'm in First and Second Chronicles. And it feels like every other chapter is like this king who led the people away from God. And then every now and again, there's like a good king who brought his people back to God. 
But if we're honest, like this feels like our most common experience. We're under government authorities that do not seem to be under the authority of God. So what do we do? This is a real question. We're not just rebellious. We see the wrongs that are out there. We have a heart inside of us. We were wired for justice. So if that's you this morning, you're like, nah, man, this government's oppressive. It's sinful. It's leading to our destruction. You might be right. I'm not arguing with you on that point. So what does Jesus mean? Well, let's take a look. What, what about oppressive, sinful governments? How should we respond? Let, the first example I could think of is the Moses example. Uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 1, Pharaoh has sent out an edict to have all the young boys killed. You guys, maybe you know the story that, that Moses' life was spared by some midwives. What did they do? They, they, put it, they concocted a little waterproof basket, sent him down the Nile River. This is godly, civic disobedience. Those women recognized it is unlawful to take a baby's life. I cannot comply with the edict of Pharaoh. Another example, and, and if you wanted to do a study on how to relate to an ungodly government, read the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is powerful. Daniel uh, chapter 3 verse 18. Uh, Daniel was asked to worship the Babylonian king, and Daniel would not bow to the Babylonian king. Daniel, however, served the government incredibly, excellently. He was the finest of all the king's servants, but he would not bow his knee to worship. And this is what it says in Daniel 3.18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You've crossed the line, O king, when you ask for my worship. This is the example of Daniel. And then it, Jesus, we even see some examples of G, in Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 2. Maybe you'll remember. Herod has just sent out this edict trying to kill the Messiah. All the babies, baby boys, again, are going to be killed. And Jesus' family is like, we're out of here. This was their version of civic disobedience. We're, we see the wrong and we're taking off. We're moving to Idaho. No, sorry, not Idaho. They fled to Egypt at that time. Sorry, that was, that was to wake you up. Oh, it was Nashville. That's where they were going. Oh, man. It is kind of funny that Jesus fled to Egypt. It's like, dude, if Egypt was the safe place for God's people, this is like, what has happened? Anyways, um, you know, also though, late in Jesus' life, we see, yeah, as a child, his family fled oppression. But right where we're at in the story, Jesus is aiming right towards the persecution. He's in Jerusalem taking on the religious leaders. Evidently, there's a time to comply and a time to defy. We also see this example in the early church, though, too. In Acts chapter 5, there's this really cool story about the early disciples on mission. They're going into towns, and they're just proclaiming the truth about Jesus, which was totally illegal. And they take some heat. They get thrown into jail. And there's like this question, like, should we stop doing what God's asked us to do? And Peter says in these uh, famous words, no, we must obey God rather than men. So what do we do even as we submit ourselves in love to our authorities? No matter if they're good or bad, there are things that we will not do. 
We will not obey men when it costs us the opportunity to obey God. This is a John Calvin summary quote right here. This is maybe, I could have maybe just said this. It would have been a shorter sermon. John Calvin said that in short, the overthrow of civil order is rebellion against God. Anyone seen some uh, civil um, order overthrown in the last few years? Rebellion against God. And obedience to leaders and magistrates is always linked to the worship and fear of God. We read that. That's what Paul said. That's what Peter said in the passages I already read. But if in turn the leaders usurp the rights of God, they are to be denied obedience as far as possible, short of offense to God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So how do we do this? How do we do it? How do we honor the state through obedience of its law and statutes? I thought about making a list and calling out all the like acceptable things that we do. You know, like not driving the speeding limit or ooh, maybe get a little personal here. Falsely reporting taxes. I don't want to make any enemies. <laughs> you heard the story of my friend's Christian accountant earlier. And I've heard the argument, you know, like, what, why would I pay taxes to a government who can't be trusted to spend it all righteously? Seems to make a lot of sense on its face. But guess who lived with a government who couldn't be trusted to spend it all righteously? Jesus, Paul, Peter. So we honor the state through obedience of its laws and its statutes, as long as those laws and statutes don't lead us into compromise. And then secondly, we honor God as the ruler of all rulers, the one who reigns over it all. Check this out. John 18, through 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. It's like... Jesus is playing chess while everyone else is playing checkers. I've got a plan and it's not of this world. My ways are not your ways. It seems to be what Jesus would say. So anyway, I could go on and into some practical examples. We've talked about tax evasion, probably bad. Maybe I should take out the probably. You know, civil disobedience, law-breaking, not good, speeding, jaywalking included, all sorts of crime. I mean, who wants a world where there's lawlessness? Don't we, like, fundamentally agree that, that in general, obeying the rules is good for all of us, you know? But here's the thing. Christians are not just tied to the civic law. We serve a higher moral law. The law of our land is not our highest authority. This is what Jesus is saying. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But you give to God what is God's. We serve a higher moral authority, right? So here's another question. When laws allow for evil, do we participate in those? Abortion, adultery, infidelity, all legal. Depending on what state you're in and all that I know, right? Homosexual marriage, divorce, all things that are outside God's good design, but perfectly legal. We serve a higher moral authority. 
give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We give to God what is God's. You know, the, uh, this is a time, I think, but there's been lots of times in society and culture where brave people were needed. Um, I was thinking about, I don't know if you're familiar with the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German president who decided to participate in the assassination of Adolf Hitler because he felt like enough was enough. He was actually a pacifist, did not believe in violence. He had that type of courage. You've heard of William Wilberforce, a man who stood against slavery, who, who stood up for justice and what was right and what was wrong despite what the law or the government was saying. Maybe you've heard of Harriet Tubman, Anne Frank. You get what I'm saying, these people who have had courage over time. And, and we may not think of ourselves as that kind of a person with that kind of cred or, or that kind of story. Um, I don't know what your story is. I don't know how you're being asked to obey and where you're being asked to stand up with courage. But what I do know is that the call of a Christian is to give God what is God's. And what is God's? Everything is God's. Remember that the Lord is not Lord of all. He's not Lord at all. So we come this morning all mixed up, I'm sure. Maybe I've just made you more confused this morning. I, I, I don't know. I hope not. But what I do know is that we've got to turn our allegiance to Jesus. We've got to follow his good ways, submit to his good authority. Let's pray. Hey, we're so glad you joined us, but don't forget to stay connected either through our website, our social media, or the Church Center app. Or you know what? Better yet, come join us in person on a Sunday morning. See you soon.